as I was studying and learning, I, I used to think about the church I know and the people I know and heard about, you know, the martyrs back in Roman times. And I used to think, how could they keep their faith like that? What made them different? And um, not all of them were seasoned, mature Christians, totally knowledgeable in the word, but something had happened to set them on a course that kept them. Um, even today, we see there are some Christians that, you know, they just march on. That doesn't mean the enemy can't get at them. And others, it's a wibbly-wobbly thing the whole time. And uh, I don't believe that God wants that. I think that there has to be a way and that he has provided it for us to come out of sin, be cleaned up, be discipled, and march on for the kingdom. And so that's the kind of teacher I am. Uh, I have a, um, a soul restoration ministry. A lot of people are gifted and God graces them to heal in the body, but he called me to work with souls. So I, I treat that very seriously because Jesus died for souls. And one of the things I've learned as I've moved into that is there are hindrances in our soul area from our lives, families, and experience that we've had that hinder the flow and the move of the Holy Spirit coming in and doing his work. Um, we call that logjam. Everybody knows what a log jam is. You've seen a log jam. There's all this stuff ready to come in, but some stupid thing is in the way and it backs up. And it's the same way with us. The Lord has poured out the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. It's there for whoever can take it in. But sometimes there's stuff in our throat, you might say, and it just can't get in and complete the work God has for it. Usually it's different wounds of different kind, broken relationships. Sometimes believers believe things that are really not sanctioned by the Bible. We come out of a world with some funny ideas. We have parents who may love us, and they may have some funny ideas. But as little kids, we suck that all in, suck it up, and we have to be taught differently. And I can say that doesn't mean you don't love your parent just because they were mistaken. The enemy wanted that to make you mistaken and your children mistaken. So what we do is we just correct our thinking. All right, so we may believe lies. And let me tell you, believing a lie is a very, very serious thing. Eve believed a lie. You don't have to do go out and shoot people to mess up your life generations after you. Just believing an untruth can really, really cause a lot of damage. Okay, all of that being said, what we want to talk about is a way to sever all that stuff off of us. Okay, we learn, and, and that's good. We repent, and that's good. All of those things. But sometimes stuff is not severed. So let me talk about the word renounce just for a minute. Okay, it comes from a Latin word, nuntiare, which simply means to declare or announce. So we're talking about a verbal thing. Uh, they, there was a person, and there probably still is, I, I'm not aware that there isn't, called a papal nuncio. And this is a guy that the Pope sends out to proclaim what the Pope has to say in another country or at a king's court or something. So... To renounce or undo that 
It's renunciare, which means to refuse or resign by formal declaration, to refuse to further follow or obey, to repudiate. So, as the words are translated from Greek into the New Testament, we hear renounce, forsake, repudiate, in several different translations. Now, my scripture tonight and I'm going to hang this on, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and I use the New King James. So if anybody wants to turn, but I will read it right now. Therefore, since we have this ministry, this is Paul, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now in Corinthians, Paul is uh, defending his ministry to a certain extent about who he is and what God has called him to do. And uh, there may have been some accusations, and he's saying, no, I've repudiated all of that. I've cut that off. Now, here is a different usage that the Lord himself spoke in Luke 14, 31 and 30 to 33. And this is familiar. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake, renounce, all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, the thing that jumped out to me at that is you can be a believer, but to move into discipleship is a whole different thing. You really have to sign off on the old life. So, In Matthew, he says again, in forsaking Nazareth, remember when Nazarenes wanted to push him off the top of the hill? Forsaking Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali. And finally, one last one. Why do the wicked renounce God? He says in his heart, you will not require an account. So I hope that's clear that we're all on the same page about what this is about. Now, in our world, there are some forms of renouncing that we're very familiar with. Let's look at divorce. Okay, you can't remarry until you're legally divorced and you get a final decree. (laughs) So that is a renouncing of all claims and all rights, all property, all accounts are settled with that person and then you're free to move on to another uh, relationship if you want. The same is true in selling property. We bought a house not too long ago, and we do not expect the prior owner to come in, stay in it, and camp out and bring their dog. It's our house. It's not theirs. Uh, one that I think is extremely interesting is citizenship. Are there any people here who actually came and is a a citizen, was born in another country and came to America and became a naturalized citizen? Okay, well, you know, for those of us who didn't, we don't realize one of the things that they do, which is to 
uh, proclaim an official oath of allegiance for U.S. citizenship. So I went to the Internet and I thought, I'm going to see what this is. And so I'm going to read it to you. I hereby, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. I'm going to tell you, when I printed this up, I was really blessed. I thought, you know, that is really amazing. That Did we ever really think about what our citizenship is and, and what it involves? So, But our ancestors did. Somebody had a parent somewhere, somewhere, who who actually made this oath. Now, at salvation, the Bible teaches us that we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, from Satan's kingdom to the kingdom of Christ and of God. And it is ruled by Christ. So we are switching citizenship. And Paul will tell us, our citizenship is now in heaven. So let's look and see a little bit about Satan here. This is, let me put this here for a minute. Because Satan is a foreign prince. All right. I have, there are actually quite a few scriptures on this. And, um, in Matthew 9:34 and 12:24, it's repeated. So I'm going to read the Matthew one first. Um, I lost my little tab here. 20, Matthew 9:34. Okay. But the Pharisees said, "He cast out devils through the prince of the devils," and then that's repeated. So he's the prince of all the demonics. And then in John, we read that he is prince of this world, John 14.30. There are three references to this in John. And um, hereafter, this is red print, you all. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me. So Jesus is calling him also a prince. And then, then again in Ephesians to 22, he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Now, we know as Lucifer, he was the highest of the principalities and the rulers of, of the principalities. And he hasn't apparently lost that um, princeliness, if you will. And he has his kingdom. So one reason that I learned that early Christians had some strength was because they did things a little differently than we do in the beginning when someone came to Christ. It was very serious business. Your life could depend on it. You needed to know what was what, what was black and what was white. 
And the elders and the bishops very clearly distinguished between the two kingdoms and servants of the two kingdoms. In the book, The Apostolic Tradition, by a man named Hippolytus, Bishop of Rome, there's a description of what occurred before and when someone was baptized. Hippolytus was born a slave before A.D. 170, and he was martyred in Rome. Okay, this first part paraphrases what went on before. After many weeks of instruction and regular ministry of deliverance by the bishop, candidates were ready to be baptized. While they could partake of communion after salvation, it was separately from the congregation until they were completely cleansed in spirit and soul and instructed in doctrine so as not to spiritually or behaviorally candidate, uh, contaminate the group. What about that? After baptism, they were then invited to enjoy communion with the congregation. And then this is in quotes, and it gets, cites the citation. And when the presbyter takes hold of each one of those who are to be baptized, let him bid him renounce, saying, I renounce thee, Satan, and all all thy service and all thy works. Now, there's um, I brought a couple of other sources from... If any of you all like to teach, this is a phenomenal book. It's called A Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. And it's by topic. And under baptism, there's a couple of sites. There's a whole lot, but I picked a couple for you. There was a fellow named Tertullian, and he was a bishop also. And he said, um, where do I have this? Let's see. Now, the covenant you have made respecting the devil is to renounce him, his pomp, and his angels. You must never think of getting back any of the things you have renounced and have given back. Then there's another source, he says, solemnly profess that we disown the devil, his pomp, and his angels. Now there's another source in here called the Apostolic Constitutions, which is apparently a collection of documents and whatnot. And it doesn't give the actual source here. When the candidate is to be baptized, let him learn what is involved in the renunciation of the devil and the joinder of himself to Christ. The candidate for baptism declares his renunciation in this manner. I renounce Satan, his works, his pomps, his worship, his angels, his falsehoods, and all things that are under him. After his renunciation, let him make his public association, saying, I associate myself to Christ and believe and am baptized into one unbegotten being, the only true God Almighty. Times have changed, huh? So I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know if I'm in trouble or not, but I'll share this. So why is it so strong and emphatic? We know that there were all shades of churches and whatnot, but these are the very early leaders, okay, uh, because they knew that baby Christians had not let, yet learned how to walk in the kingdom or in kingdom authority or to exercise discernment. Sometimes that gift of discernment of who's really running the show, who's pulling the strings, has, doesn't come right away. And it's a modeling and a practice that they could do to be free from that. 
and to cause some of these things to develop more quickly, that would, those hindrances would be out of the way. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story that bears uh, direct uh, upon this. When I was a kid, I grew up in New Orleans. And in the summer, we used to take the bus to Audubon Park because there's this big, 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 big swimming pool there. And it was only 10 cents or something, <laughs> 7 cents to ride the bus. Okay, and so we could swim all day and, and have picnics and hike. Where the bus stopped across the street was a curve in the Mississippi River and a big levee. And it was not far, I mean, just like out to the parking lot. And on the riverside, there was a large area because it was where there was a bend. There was land there. And I remember my daddy saying, now, don't hang around there. It's not safe for girls. So we didn't hang around. But later, one Sunday, Daddy took us down to the levee, and we walked over to the other side. You'll never guess what was there. It was this huge shanty town with squatters all over the place, and they were on the side of the river there. A squatter is a person who settles on land without right or title or payment or rent. So these were really bad dudes over there. They were river workers. The city had no jurisdiction on the land. They couldn't send police in there. And back in those days, in the 50s, the feds were all interested in communists, so they pretty much had free reign. The only reason Daddy knew about it was that 20 years before, he, was, he had been a doctor and he rode ambulance, and occasionally they had knife fights and shootings down there. <laughs> they would call for help. So our soul condition when we come out of sin and we're saved and baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost, we still may have squatters hanging around, okay, if we haven't cut them off. And they are there as long as we don't discern them or kick them out, one or the other. So people who don't realize this or have leaders who haven't really shown this to them, many times they just struggle with so many things. They struggle with family members who may not be saved or have garbage themselves and don't know really how to, to become free of that. So whether or not you agree, knowingly or unknowingly, you still may be subject to the influence of these powers. They don't have any legal right to be there. But that don't bother a squatter. <laughs> now, sin gives Satan the right to assign spirits over various hidden things of shame. And let's face it, you come out of sin, you don't stop everything right away. And so while we have God's grace, he doesn't. It's the letter of the law, the, the dots and the tittle. And then he's still a squatter. He won't leave anyhow unless some big guys come push him out. So their assignment is to activate and energize and bring cycles of temptation and failure, rationalization over and over again, and give people discouragement. Or, you know, sometimes they just fall away. It's just too much, and they don't understand it. It's the enemy that still has influence in their lives. For God's full blessing to prevail and for his power in our life and to be able to stick to discipleship, oh, we need to be free of that stuff. It, just to be obedient. You know, you can say, yeah, I know. Somebody lost their earrings. Silver hearts. <laughs> um, so here's where renunciation can really give you a stride ahead. 
And um, I never learned about this until maybe 10 years ago. I've been a Christian a really long time, studying the Word and all that. And, you know, stuff comes to you in drips. And so if you receive this, you say, oh, I don't do that. I don't want any junk on me. And all Satan wants to do is to keep us from being effective Christians. One who can bind the strong man, disarm him, and then plunder him of his captives and the people he has in his, in his hole and rescue those souls from damnation. So what we want to say is, is Satan scared of you or me? Does he tremble when we walk by? There, he should. So there are good reasons for old ties and loyalties to a person or a group to be renounced before another tie is made. Spiritually, the issue here is, isn't repentance, okay? When we sincerely repent, we're forgiven. But we do have an adversary who just doesn't go away easily, especially if we're insufficiently discipled. Renouncing severs all soul ties, any agreements that we may have had with activity or darkness, the uh, groups in our unsaved life. As I read earlier, it's renouncing was done just prior to going down into the waters of baptism and rising up as a new creation in Christ, dead to the old, new to the kingdom of Christ. The new converts understood this clearly, and I'm thinking that it was this understanding that gave them um, what they needed to walk through history at, at that time. So... One reason renouncing is so powerful is that it is a, an act of the will. You know, you, the, in the spirit, in the Bible, it says somewhere, you know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The will is the thing that pushes us through in a situation like that. I don't care, God, if I'm the tin can on the back of the car. I'm going on this train anyway. And um, so it puts us in a position to be in full agreement with God's will, with nothing hindering that there's a good seal there. And when we have repented and renounced, our will is free in perfect agreement with the will of God and we can receive truth. There's a lot of things blocking the reception of truth, you know. We can be obedient to the things of God and we can shine, scare the devil. Okay, in the area of the will where the enemy has his hidden power, in the area of the will is, is where this is. James 1.8 is a very familiar scripture. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. His will is on both sides of the fence. Oh, but those were such nice people, you know. And they're not bad, and that's true. But we have a different role with them now. Uh, and they can lure us into things we really know we ought not to do. Uh, if you follow Christ and get discipled, after a while, it's just the, the appetite's going to go. But it can, it can be deadly. So I'm going to read this again in the amplified version, that same verse. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, secret thoughts, feelings, desires, underhandedness, methods and arts that men hide through shame. We refuse to deal craftily or practice trickery and cunning or to adulterate or handle dishonestly the word of God. But we state the truth openly, clearly, and candidly. 
So we commend ourselves in the sight and presence of God to every man's conscience. Do you get a feeling that these things that he's talking about are deceptive acts? That you may be a Christian, but you still haven't cleaned up your act, you know. So the hidden things of shame uh, in every church, even now, and I'm, I'm kind of working on a study now on deceptive ministers and false teachers, uh, they have a way of doing it, and we can recognize it. But this applies to our lives, too. We, we don't want that stuff in. It, it's, uh, it, it's bad on our testimony. Let me clarify here guilt and shame. Guilt is easy. A law has been broken, <laughs> and the lawbreaker is guilty. So it's a legal status, and you are awaiting punishment or mercy. <laughs> Very simple. Okay, feelings about what happened can vary. The lawbreaker may feel good about what he did. He just hated getting caught, okay? Or he may really feel bad or repentant, or he could be neutral. Well, you know, that's how it is. Usually he doesn't want to pay the fine. Now, there's also something that is called false guilt. False guilt is very deceptive, but it works the same way in our spirit. False guilt is a wrong belief system a person imposes when a person imposes guilt on themselves. So how does this happen? Okay, let's say there's a divorce, and a little child thinks that he did it. Children have funny ways of thinking. They think only about their immediate little circle. Oh, I must have caused this, this horrible thing. I feel so bad. And he begins to move through life in a guilty way. And there's a behavior pattern that will show this. Uh, similarly, sometimes a parent or a sibling is killed, and the little kid did something that he, mischief, small stuff. So he's guilty, okay? But this piggybacks on the worst thing, and they are really torn up. And um, the enemy just uses this deadly. It's deadly, okay? And uh, so many people have experienced that sort of thing, and uh, we, we don't have to have it. It's false guilt. So learning the truth of the incident sets that person free. Okay, it's not the child's logic. Now, shame is a little different, and there are two kinds. And both have to do with a person feeling somehow dirty or soiled or no good. There again, let's go back to a little child. It can be poured into a child by their parents who continually say, you're no good, you're not going to be anything, what's wrong with you? And that's just, this is so, so painful and destructive to a child. And they'll begin to think, you know, I must really be bad. Why would, why would the parent who gave me life think of me this way unless I am? And sometimes a child may wander into some sexual stimulation or is abused or is told or thinks that they're soiled and dirty. And so they live in shame. Okay, shame is related to being dirty or evil some kind of way. An adult, similarly, might be involved in a practice, has committed sin that is very heinous or perverse as well as illegal. Frequently, there's some kind of perverse sex. And so they have a lot of shame, okay? Most societies really have laws against these practices. So the person believes that only someone really awful can do such a thing. And so he is both guilty and 
dirty and ashamed. And he tries to hide this. Uh, Jeremiah talks about a basket of rotten fruit. That picture is a picture of shame. Uh, that he was referring to the fallen, fallen Israel who had turned to idolatry. You can't do anything with them. Um, it's a wrong belief about one's potential for forgiveness, healing, and cleansing, whatever the legal or moral penalty. And so in both cases, okay, there is a full remedy in Christ for these situations. So what we want to do, that, that's the hidden things of shame. They're hidden, okay? Remember, they're hidden. So what we want to do is to, is to just move in a direction that's very positive and do some renouncing, okay? I've set it up very simple as we pray. If anyone here has, has some log jam that is really troubling them, the enemy may bug you a little bit. He doesn't want this straightened out. Just remember he's playing mind games with you. Just move on, move on through it. So I'm going to pray now to get ready, okay? Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I now ask that you come and prepare this people for freedom wherever it's needed. Hover over us. Help us to examine our lives and to bring clarity if something needs renouncing specifically. In the name of Jesus, I command Satan and his cohorts, be bound, gagged, and obedient to the word of the Lord. Okay, now let's just wait. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you move over the hearts of this group. Bring to awareness anything in particular that you want to do in the name of Jesus. Now, what I've done is I've rewritten the Oath of Allegiance. And so we're going to make an Oath of Allegiance tonight. And we'll do this verbally. We'll proclaim it. So I'll read a little bit, and then you speak it, okay? In the mighty name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance, fidelity and service to Satan, his pomp and his kingdom of darkness, and to any of his servants, practices or lies, which I have heretofore been subject to, participated in, or agreed with. Now, if the Lord um, brought anything in particular to mind, take a moment. I renounce forever, and whatever that may be, talk to God. I come out of agreement with Satan. And will serve only the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. I will support and defend the word of God and his kingdom against all enemies. And I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. So help me, God. Amen.
That's it. I just love that. All right, if you all would, anyone wants to have prayer ministry or anything, you all can take it back, okay? Well, thank you, Winnie. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. Let's give the Lord a hand for Winnie. Um, you know, Winnie, let me, let me get a scripture oh, wait, here. I better get off the air, huh? <laughs> Pastor Jack Hayford has an entire ministry that's built around what Winnie just taught us about called cleansing streams. And if you've ever done a cleansing streams ministry, have you done it, Winnie? Yeah, it's awesome. I've done it. And the, the Cleansing Streams ministry is actually built around exactly what Winnie was talking about tonight. And if you do this Cleansing Streams ministry, what you do is at the end of uh, many weeks of study, you actually go to a retreat. And the second day of the retreat, you do about eight hours of what Winnie's talking about. You are renouncing things that you never knew that you needed to renounce before. But one of the things that happens after that is it seems like you have a newly established direct line to the Lord God Almighty. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It does clear up the logjam. And I'm, and I'm believing tonight that, that what Winnie preached on is going to clear up logjams in a lot of our lives, myself included. You know, I was looking in the scripture as Winnie was, Winnie was talking. And here's, here's just a passage that, that kind of underlies what Winnie was speaking about. This is the salutation in Second Peter that uh, Peter opens up his epistle with. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So if we focus on an understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, that that grace and that peace will be available to us. And we can start laying down. And and Peter goes on and and talks about laying down the things that we're leaving behind, including lust. Amen? Amen. So while Shake kind of plays for us, um, if, if... anybody has any prayer needs, what I would just suggest that we do at this time is um, if you have a prayer need that you want somebody to pray with you in agreement over, pray over, why don't you just stand, raise your hand, and let those in the body, some saints around you, just gather around you, and let's pray over those needs that exist in the body. Okay? Thank you.